We got the news that he was in extremely serious condition, and it just went from worse to worse. In about a 12-hour time period, it, it went from he's just kind of had, had this little sick thing at home to life or death. We were, you know, we were in a, we're in a battle for a child's life and for a family. I'm a little bit of a, um, a nut when it comes to Christmas because I didn't have the lights outside and all of that. We grew up, you know, kind of poor, and, and um, so this was a really special Christmas for us. Um, you know, we went out and got our tree, and stockings were hung, and then everything changed. We love to do uh, train cake every year together as a family, and Jackson and I were actually doing that, just me and him that day. So it was a super fun, like, mommy-son moment, and we were making the cake, and then that evening, just not long after that, he was just laid out on the floor. I knew this, he's not okay. He needs to go to the hospital. And so we rushed him to the ER. He was just, like, so sick, and I could hardly, you know, get him to the hospital. The doctor had called me up, and he said, I'm really concerned that he might have E. coli. When I heard that, I thought, oh, psh, that's like one in a million chance. I don't feel like that would be possible. Um, and if it is E. coli, that's treatable. And a lot of times E. coli doesn't, I mean, it's just a terrible sickness and it passes through the system. But in our case, um, he contracted HUS, that, which then developed into kidney failure and to the most severe, um, the most severe case of HUS. The doctor had said that this is basically out of their realm of capabilities and that we had to go to a different children's hospital. And I was thinking, oh, that's gonna be in the next few days. He said, no, you need to go tonight and you're gonna get on a helicopter, we're gonna fly him there. I was just flooded with the sense that I might never know my boy. Growing up to be a man, it might be this week that I lose my son. All of a sudden, his speech starts to slur. He just started not being able to communicate, not being able to respond. In the middle of the night, they rushed us up to the PICU and called a neurosurgeon in, they tested him, and there was no response. There was no pain response. There was no recognition of me. And at that moment, I thought, I, I'm losing my son. Even if he makes it through this, I don't know if he'll ever know me again. He was just sprawled out on the bed and couldn't respond to anything. He was gone. There's a time when you said every prayer you can say, and you don't have the strength to praise and worship anymore. And you haven't slept for weeks. And you're just kind of undone. And that was a moment for me when I was undone. The flip side of that is, I feel like that was the moment that I really began to feel the prayers around the world. Hi, it's Christmas morning, and a lot of you are asking how Jackson's doing. Just want to say thanks for all your prayers and support. It's been overwhelming. Um, 
It's a really long story, but it's really complicated right now, and we really need a Christmas miracle. They can't get to his blood. Um, there was something supernatural that, that happened that brought the church together. I would pull up social media and I would just read people's prayers in the comments of people all over the world. I've never met them before, but they were just crying out for my son. We were in the brink of life or death and people would be posting comments on our Facebook. We are up praying for you. People posting by the thousands commenting and they'd be all over the world. We're in Brazil. My church, whole church is praying for you. I'm in Russia. My little children pray for your son every day. I didn't have any prayers left to say, but I could feel and see and hear the prayers being said on my behalf. Yeah, just, this is a box full of letters and something that we've really treasured. This is the bed that Jackson is laying on. And Jesus is healing him. They're in the middle of the world. Oh, wow. Jesus, from Mercy, four years old. I hooked up to everything. They allowed me just to like hold him in my arms and you could just see the light still in his eyes. And I just remember just standing and declaring over him he was gonna, he was gonna raise up out of that grave and he was gonna, he was gonna live. We'd get good news and then worse news. It'd be this, it was so up and down and so we'd go to the hospital and they said, they thought he'd be okay, so they sent us home. And then to find out that he's worse than you even thought the first time. And then you're at the hospital and you're thinking, you know, he's gonna get better. And then you find yourself in a helicopter and then you find yourself in a... <sighs> the head of the PICU came in and said, we have to get, we have to get a central line in tonight. They couldn't give him another sedative, so it would be like going in, basically having surgery on a child without any anesthesia. And the doctor took us aside and put us in another room they took us in a room and explained we had to have this procedure done or we would lose him, but there were so many risks to having the procedure done. I remember the night we got the text that they didn't think he was gonna make it through the night. When you got the text, you just collapsed into my arms and just like began to weep. And I could just feel like, like we're gonna lose. Like we're gonna lose Jack's, like we're not gonna win this one. There's not gonna be victory on this battlefield. Those moments, even though they're really hard, something within us rises up. The only moments of trauma and intensity can actually call forth. In those moments for us, like the only option is like, we just have to worship. I remember standing at this crossroads and this giant of unbelief standing in front of me. Like, it's, it's your prayers don't matter. Um, all these prayers don't matter. Like, the Lord's not gonna hear it. This is gonna be like the other moments where you prayed with all your heart and then you buried your friend the next week. And, um, and it, but there was like something inside of me of like, no. And the melody just erupted out of my heart that, um, I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies.
He sent me a song, and I didn't know to what extent, but it said his their community had prayed for Jackson, and in a spontaneous moment, they came up with a song, and so they just you know recorded it and sent it to me. I took that song over my phone and I played over my son over and over again. You know, I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I raise a hallelujah. My weapon is a melody. And that's exactly what I was doing. I was I was fighting warfare and and it was wasn't just me, I wasn't alone. I had people <laughs> literally making weapons, writing songs, and sending it to us. It still humbles me and baffles me. The power of global prayer, the power of community, the power of believing together. He started talking again. What did you just see in the picture of? You know, he was, you could tell it was, it was still like fragile, it was still coming back, but he was talking again. And that was like amazing. He was asking in the cutest two year old voice, like everything you can imagine that he liked, you know, I want a hamburger, I want a hamburger. <laughs> You know, but we were so happy to hear him talking again. From talking with Joel, the tone started to feel like, oh, wow, we, we're coming out of this, I think. Just the shift internally of like, we made it was incredible. We walked in to the hospital just before Christmas, and now we're sitting here with a healthy son taking his nap right now. Hey, buddy. Look, we're going home. Look, you haven't been outside for a month. I, I remember hearing the news that uh, Jackson is coming home. And it was like, uh, it was like Christmas. We believe in the power of praise. We've seen a, God do a lot. And I don't know the secret to all of it, but I do know that Jackson is well today. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but wonder or think that uh, that that praise had a part of that. This is part of our story now, and it's part of Jackson's testimony of his life that the world will know that miracles happen. This gospel is not haphazard. It's not a Russian roulette. It's not a guessing game. It is the absolute nature of God revealed through his goodness and his kindness. And what is necessary is for the people of God to rise to the occasion, to face the impossibilities of life with the confidence of God's character, his nature, and his promise. There's no other option. We were called to this. This is our responsibility. It is our privilege. We wanted to play that video of the story behind that song, Raise a Hallelujah, because it is such a rich picture of the power that praise and worship has for breakthrough. And you can remain standing if you like, you can sit if you like, but I am going to read some scripture from 2 Chronicles 20. And in this scripture, a vast army from many hostile tribes have come against the king of Judah. And some of you here today may feel that everything is against you. You may feel that the enemy has come against you. Meditate on these words. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 16. This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. 
You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow and the Lord will be with you. Verse 18. Jehoshaphat, that was the king, bowed down with his face to the ground. And all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out ahead of the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. And as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the enemy. The Lord set ambushes against the enemies of Judah, who ended up destroying each other, so that when the men of Judah came to that place, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. So the king and his men went to carry off the vast plunder of the enemy. There is a plunder that the enemy has taken. And as we stand, as we stand and allow the Lord to fight the battle, the enemy flees, the enemy is defeated, and the plunder is ours. And if you look at the screen, I'd, I'd highlighted some key words on that slide, but I suggest when you get home, read this scripture again because it has so much to tell us about the relationship of worship and warfare. Because the people worshipped as a response to what God said. But then the people worshipped as an act, going ahead of the army. And it's clear that the success of the battle was not to do with the might of Judah, but that they trusted and worshipped God and let his strategy bring them victory. Amen. Amen. And this theme occurs again and again in the Old and the New Testament. This next slide. When the Egyptian army were chasing the Israelites who came to the Red Sea, we know where to go, and they were afraid, Moses said, just stand still. Just wait. The Lord will fight for you. When Joshua crossed the River Jordan to march around Jericho, first he sent the priests out in front of the people with the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, at the very front. And the waters parted. And then he sent priests out at the very front of the army to march around Jericho, blowing trumpets. And finally, in the New Testament, when the apostles were in prison, they sang hymns and they prayed, and the result was an earthquake, and the prison doors flew open. So right now, where you are, I want you to pray for each other. In groups, you can stand, you can sit. This whole thing is about standing still. So if standing has something to do with you, stand. But in your groups, in two... Thank you. Thank you. So uh, we... We come and welcome, welcome to uh, our new series focusing on worship. Um, our heart for Junction 10 
as we journey through this worship series together is that we won't just learn about worship, but that we will be released into a deeper, richer, freer expression of worship in its full creativity. Is that something that you can pray for? Is that something we can want? And over the coming weeks, we're going to look at things like extravagant worship, worship in spirit and truth, if Kev remembers the theme. Uh, we're going to uh, have a guest speaker as well. Uh, someone called Carol Lee Sampson is coming in. We're very excited because Carol uh, carries something of anointing, uh, and we want her to bring that and impart that to us, don't we? And, and Carol has written many worship songs, including writing with Jared Cooper. Do you remember Jared came when we did our uh, Supernatural series and, and blessed us so much? So she's written songs with Jared. She's recorded numerous CDs. And she, she's travelled around the world leading worship for conferences and churches. And she's coming out over to Little Old Junction 10 to bless us. So we look forward to that. We're going to really celebrate at the end of this series. So that's the coming weeks. Um, but today, uh, we're kicking things off by asking the question, why is worship central? Now, just take a minute with the person next to you, and the worship team have got a head start on this, because we discussed this on Thursday when we started our series of worship training for the worship team, and we looked at this question. But talk to the person next to you one minute. Why do you think worship is central? Go. So why is worship central? The worship team came up with three Ps. And interestingly enough, I came up with three Ps as well, but they're the different three Ps. But we Ps out of the same pod, so it doesn't matter. That was terrible. So to unpack the question of why worship is central, um, there are three themes today. Purpose, I want to talk about the nature of worship. Place, I want to talk about the status of worship. And power, I want to talk about the prophetic and worship. So first of all, purpose, the nature of worship. The centrality of worship in our relationship with God is summed up in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which says the chief purpose for which man or human beings were made is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this glorifying and enjoying God is the core of what worship is all about. It's what we're made for. As John Ortberg said in his book, The Purpose Driven Life, it's not about you. It's not about me. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and your ambitions. If you want to know 
while you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. And worship is this amazing honour that we get to worship the God of the universe. And by worshipping the God of the universe, we get to understand our purpose. And we don't worship him because he needs it, but because we need it. Because as we praise and worship our God, then our attention and capacity opens up and we're able to enter into his presence. Now, my friend Jason Clark, whenever he's speaking on worship, says it comes from an old English word, worship. And that's how you spell it on the screen there. And, and what does this word mean? It means to proclaim and give worth to something that you consider precious and supreme, supremely valuable. Now, at the start of our worship series, I want to be absolutely clear that worship has a rich and varied repertoire. You can give God worth in many, many ways. But for this series, we'll often be zooming in on our corporate worship together, worshipping as a community with Jesus as the centre. And this is one of the main ways, when you read about worship in the Bible, this is the main way that worship finds expression. Now, Derek Prince, some of you may know Derek Prince, he was an amazing and well-respected Bible teacher. And he said this, If you only have ten minutes to pray, spend seven or eight in worship. You can cover a lot of prayer in two minutes. See, prayer and worship go hand in hand. They're both, they're both about the way that we give God worth. They're both about a process, the same process of communing and communicating with God. It's all about the presence of God. And often if we begin to pray, we can pray from us to God. We can talk about our needs, our perspective. However, worship changes our prayers. During worship, we connect with the very heart of the Father and as we experience his presence, this changes our hearts, it changes our minds, it changes our prayers. We go from praying our prayers, which are from us to God, to communing, communing with him and praying his prayers from heaven to earth. And this is where the power of his presence comes. So that we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that was the first point about worship. Let's look at number two, the place, the status of worship. There's an intimate link between our worship and the territory that we occupy. And in ancient Israel, this link was between the land that God had given the Israelites and their relationship to him. And I want to read a few verses from 2 Chronicles again, this time from verses 6 and 7. Now, this is where Solomon, David's son, King David's son, has become king and he's built the first ever temple for the Lord, a permanent dwelling place for the presence of God, where God meets his people. 
And when I read this, I want us to remember two things, please. That the Old Testament temple was built as a copy or a pattern or a shadow of what's in heaven. Hebrews tells us that. We looked at that in our Hebrew series. Secondly, although the scriptures here are talking of a physical building, when Jesus came and died on the cross and rose again, ascended to the Father and sent his Holy Spirit, we, us believers, became the temple. And the Bible says that we, as a body, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It says we are living stones that are being built into a spiritual house and that when two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, his presence is with us. So please bear that in mind that the temple in the Old Testament is a pattern of what happens in heaven and we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit as I read this. This is what Solomon says as he dedicates the temple to the Lord. 2 Chronicles 6 verse 24. When your people turn back, give praise to your name, praying and making supplication. Notice praise and prayer. Before you in this temple, then hear from heaven, forgive the sins of your people and bring them back to the land that you gave them and their ancestors. Verse 26. When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray towards this place and give praise to your name and they turn from their sin because you've afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people, Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land that you gave them, your people, for an inheritance. Verse 28. When famine or plague comes to the land, or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, or when enemies besiege them in any of their cities, whatever disaster or disease may come, and when a prayer or a plea is made by anyone among your people, Israel, being aware of their afflictions and pains and spreading out their hands in worship towards this temple, then hear from heaven, your dwelling place. Forgive and deal with everyone according to all they do, since you know their hearts. For you alone know the human heart, so that they will fear you and walk in obedience to you all the time they live in the land you gave our ancestors. And when Solomon has finished this dedication and dedicating the temple, God's presence falls. And God talks to Solomon in what is probably the best-known piece of prophetic scripture, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. This is what God says in response. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive them their sin and will heal their land prayer worship praise all intermingled and in this dedication of the temple Solomon so clearly understood the direct relationship between our worthship of God how much we ascribe worth to God and our fortunes in the territory 
he's promised us. And all of this is echoed by God's reply to Solomon in this passage. Now, this relationship between worship and the land has an obvious resonance with us as a church. On our five-year journey towards reoccupying the physical land that God gave us at 323 Wolverhampton Road. But as the eldership here, and particularly Kevin often says, we're not going to wait until we get to that physical place before we do what we need to do to occupy it. And I would suggest that although all of these scriptures are talking about physical territory, that there is territory in the heavenlies that we are to take hold of, that we are to stand firm for, that we are to battle for and be victorious in as we journey on a five-year mission to reoccupy the land. But there were two parts to God's word, to the church at Junction 10, to the leadership team in 2013. One was about the physical building, demolishing it. But the other was about building community, building a family with Jesus at the centre. And uh, in the church offices, I came across a book about worship by Jack Hayford. As I started to think a month or two ago about this this introduction to the worship series. And I flicked through, and Jack Hayford was a pioneering American Pentecostal minister, and he was an author, and he wrote this about worship. Worship is the key to unshackling the future. Let God's people put worship at the centre. Worship at the centre, that has some resonance, doesn't it? Of their lives, and the glory of God will fill the house where they gather. He goes on to say, the pathway for the church is moving into its full destiny lies in perceiving the true purpose and spiritual dynamic in worship. Let me pause on that last sentence there. What Jack is saying is it's only when we truly perceive the purpose and spiritual dynamic in worship that the pathway opens for the church, and I'm not just talking about the church at Junction 10, I'm talking about the wider church, but, but we're focused on us at the moment, for the church to occupy its full destiny. And I don't know about you, but I want the full destiny that God has for us, don't you? And this leads me on to my third and final point, power. Prophesying into Junction 10 worship. Now, next week, you'll have the October newsletter. And um, Vicky asked me to write uh, the, the article uh, about worship as we enter this series. Uh, and I say in there, and I'll say now, that I have been truly humbled by God's divine orchestration. It would seem that three things have converged. We've got the worship series that we've started today. We've got some things that have been happening with the worship team. And we've had prophetic words about worship. And just to explain, um, the worship series, we try and plan any teaching series well in advance, usually a year in advance. So the idea about a series on worship has been in the diary for quite a while now. Can you please pray for this season of a greater focus on worship? Because we want our 
family at Junction 10, not just to learn about worship, as I said at the beginning, but to be inspired, to be encouraged, to be engaged, to be released into new levels, new realms of worship as we seek a greater measure of the presence of God and the powerful moving of his spirit. Can you pray for that, church? And then the worship team, can you pray for our worship team and its leadership? Um, worshippers are always on the front lines of the spiritual battle as we heard from those scriptures at the start. And the enemy understands how important worship is. The enemy will always seek to attack and undermine anything to do with worship as we step out into what God is calling us to. As we plan to occupy that new territory that God has promised us and given us. And then worship, prophetic. We've been blessed by the growing ministry of the prophetic team that Rachel leads with Joy and with Penny. Um, and earlier this year, they met with the worship team to pray and prophesy over them. And some powerful and weighty words came from that session about worship at Junction 10. And I don't know about you, but this whole orchestration excites me. It gives me a glimpse of what our Heavenly Father might have in store for us. And I can see the indivisible link between the prophecy and the worship and the powerful combination that us as a congregation, led by our worship team, has to play. So I'm going to end this preach a little bit differently. First of all, I'm going to share a summary of those prophetic words. And then... As a body of Christ, we're going to declare those words and use them as a foundation to pray and prophesy. So, let me just run through very briefly what the words were. Firstly, the role of the worship team and worship at Junction 10. Junction 10 will be led by the worship team. Like a pewter jug pouring out fire, Junction 10 will soar in the prophetic in worship, in teaching, in preaching, in giving and in loving. We will have our own sound at Junction 10. New songs will come. Even in difficult times, you carry a new song. I wonder as I read these others, if Penny and Joy and Rachel could come and join me, please. I know you're hobbling a bit, Joy, but if you don't mind, that'd be okay. Number two, a period of refreshing. We're in a period of early spring and it's muddy mess now but a whole new season of refreshing and freedom is coming out of rest, recovery, resilience, refresh. We have scraped the barrel of our reserves. He's going to fill that barrel with heavenly resources to overflowing. And then some, there were some words about how we should respond. Immersing ourselves in worship. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. There will be an outpouring of his presence, but only if we let him. This requires personal revelation, hunger and thirst for the giver, and then all else will fall away. We will let God take over. Number four, surrender. John 4, verse 23 to 24, a place of spirit and truth. We need to simply and honestly be ourselves. By surrendering and let God fix us, we will sing a new song. And he wants us to sing from that place. This needs to come from the Spirit, where he has filled us 
individually. And then finally, number five, create space. We need to give space to pour out. Are we busy doing nothing? We need to give God the space to move. Like an olive being crushed and the juice coming out, olive oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Let the juice flow. Let the Spirit flow. Let God move. We need to operate from overflowing. We are tinder. God is waiting to fan into flames. But it starts in our personal journey. This will burn brightly and attract people. Embers aren't the end. They can flash into life. If we feel there's nothing left, we can open the door. When we open the door, oxygen gets sucked in and there's life. But you need to give it space and allow the Holy Spirit to cause the fire. The Holy Spirit is like bellows. Give him space to allow him to breathe over the grey embers. It may look dead, but give him space. Amen? Amen. What I'd like to do...